today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The midterms are over. The Democrats have taken the House and the Republicans have hung on to the Senate and increased their uh, presence there as well. Let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News based out of Washington. And he is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon, Scott. So uh, both sides win here. I mean, it, it, it sounds like both sides are claiming victory. How does America feel right now? Well, both sides are claiming victory, and both of their parties are going to claim victory as well. I mean, this is a big gain for the Democrats. This is a big gain from what uh, happened to them back in 2016. It shows that they're this new party. They're diverse. They're ready to kind of build on uh, momentum to move forward. Uh, Republicans absolutely calling this a victory. They've increased the number of people that they have in the Senate. That works well for the president. Uh, The president right now is calling this a victory on both sides, despite the fact that he lost uh, a number of people in the House last night. But he's claiming that, you know, this is a big win for his party by keeping the Senate and that it's a big win for him by Democrats being in the the House because he says this gives him an opportunity now to work with both sides. Uh, Are you surprised at President Trump's reaction? It was interesting that uh, he was campaigning extremely hard, moving right up to Election Day. Then, of course, it was silence. and, uh, And now his reaction. Your thoughts on his reaction? Well, his reaction is uh, is a little bizarre right now because he's speaking in the East Room of the White House and, and he's he's all but basically attacking uh, Republican incumbents who lost last night in the House. And he says that they lost because they didn't embrace him. Uh, this is this is a little strange considering that he's talking about con- this being a historic win for uh, for the Republicans. So he's kind of uh, sending a bit of a mixed message there. Uh, the president's reaction, for the most part, has been what we thought it would be. You know, he's already fired back at Democrats saying, look, if you're going to try to investigate me now that you're in the House, uh, I'm going to start having my people investigate you. We're going to be butting heads for the next couple of years. Uh, You know, he called to congratulate Nancy Pelosi last night, then made a tongue-in-cheek comment about her on Twitter this morning. So what we're seeing from the president is not any different than what we saw over the last couple of years. Uh, So what does this mean? Obviously, with uh, the House now in control of the Democrats, uh, he certainly, Donald Trump will certainly be have to be a lot more accountable for what he does. Uh, He gained the Republicans gained uh, some seats in the Senate. But at the end of the day, does that mean anything with the change uh, of balance of power, having any more seats there? Uh, How do you interpret this? Well, I mean, having more seats in the Senate works for him when it comes to uh, getting uh, judicial nominees put forward and when it gets to uh, executive appointments that need to be confirmed by the Senate. That's one thing that will uh, that will help the president. Uh, when it comes to kind of having two parties controlling both houses right now, the only way that they're going to be able to work through things is if the president, uh, the so-called, you know, art of the deal, you know, he, he knows how to negotiate a deal. If he can extend that olive branch over to the House to say, look, I know we have different ideologies on things. I know that we may not be, you know, uh, you know, politically in tune with each other all the time. But we need to work together. He said that he's intending to do that. Whether or not Democrats are going to listen to that is one thing. But even if things do decide to get through the House and they need to be passed down to the Senate, he still doesn't have that Senate majority uh, with 60 plus to be able to pass whatever they want. So there's always going to be bickering on either side of the House now. So will the Democrats use this as an opportunity to expand their platform or just do everything they can to try to derail Donald Trump's? I think we're going to see a mix of both. I mean, the Democrats were elected because, yes, uh, you know, people wanted to see them go after Donald Trump and hold him accountable for the things that he has said and for the ways that the White House has been operating, uh, you know, over the last couple of years. But the Democrats were also put in place because people want to see, uh, you know, a, a new way uh, in the future, especially when it comes to something like health care. Uh, the, the Republicans tried to kind of strip away and repeal Obamacare and the Affordable Health Care Act. Uh, the Democrats, you know, some of them that were voted in are much more kind of in tune to the, the Canadian 
way of living where healthcare should be provided for everybody at all, uh, you know, at all times and at no cost. And while that's likely not going to happen, it's something that the Democrats need to pay attention to because the last thing they want to do now is alienate this base who put them in power. There's a lot of people who are younger who are who are genuinely concerned about the healthcare costs in the United States because as their parents get older, that could put another financial burden on the younger people. Uh, what about division within the Democrats? I mean, they're having their own issue, and many thought that this was going to be a uh, a blue wave that, that that swept through. I mean, they did get the House of Representatives, but that being said, that's very common in presidential elections and situ or midterm elections and situations like this. Uh, are they disappointed that they didn't make more of a wave? I think that they are taking the win that they got now, and they're going to run with that by saying, look, this is much better than we did in 2016. And even in the races that we didn't win, we made a significant gain. If you look at the Senate race where it was Ted Cruz up against Beto O'Rourke, this is a man who came up. He was grassroots. He didn't really have any kind of political clout outside of some state-level activity, and he became kind of a national sensation. Sure, he lost to Ted Cruz, but he lost by only, you know, uh, within a, a two-percentage margin here. And that's a big deal because Texas is not a Democratic state. So for Democrats to look and say, look, we made big gains in a big Republican state. This could be how things look as we look, you know, two and four and six years down the road. They'll take the win that they have right now and they'll build that as momentum moves towards the next election. So are we having more polarization? Is there more divisiveness? I mean, you know, we know what we've got, what we've gone through in the first two years of this. What does the second, uh, what does the second term or the second portion of this term look like the last two years? I mean, there, there's always going to be this polarization in the United States, especially now with Donald Trump continuing into his second ter- uh, his you know, the second half of his first term. Staunch Republicans are going to stay with the president. Staunch Democrats are going to be completely against the president. And that's likely how we're going to see things move forward. There's since we have this new Democratic majority in Washington, there's going to be this check and balance on the president. And it may not allow things to move forward. It may, you know, kind of keep this this uh, divide that's in the country fairly strong. But if last night was an indication, it shows that there is still big in enthusiasm for wanting to make things work, you know, however your party wants to make it work in Washington. And it goes to show that because of the sheer number of people that actually came out to vote in a midterm election. That seems bizarre as well. The to have some to have so many people come out and yet still have such an incredibly tight race. Well, I mean, that's just that's the nature of how things work down here. It's the nature of how the votes are parsed out and how things actually work when it comes to, you know, collecting the votes altogether. But, you know, 111 people, a million people coming out to vote in a midterm election that usually ends up seeing 70 to 80 million people. There is some big enthusiasm still. So uh, still some uh, uh, I know what the situation in uh, is it Florida. Yes, I believe where uh, they're, they're still counting. There's still going to be some discrepancy there as to who is it or is it Georgia? Uh, there's actually both of those states are, right. are going to be uh, dealt with. Uh, Florida is going to have to go to a recount right now because nobody uh, or the, the, the final vote was within a half percentage and state law says that within a half percent you have to recount. So the Democrats could potentially keep that as a Senate seat. The Georgia race that needs to be uh, you know dealt with right now because Stacey Abrams, right. the uh, Democratic uh, candidate for governor, says that there are ballots that are missing. So that's going to need to be dealt with before they can give a finalized vote ta- uh, count. Uh, America, learn anything from this exercise, Reggie? Well, I mean, America learned again that polls can oftentimes be wrong and you shouldn't put all of your stock in what the analysts are telling you in the weeks leading up to an event because we said this was going to, or at least pollster has had said, this was going to be this big blue wave across the country and that it would come very quickly. Uh, it didn't come as quickly as we thought. It was, you know, there was a couple of races in Virginia that we said if they flip blue instantly, that's going to be it. One of the races took almost four hours for it to call. So pollsters were a little bit wrong. Their projections were kind of within that margin of error. But this is what happens now going into an election. 
We put all of our eggs in one basket when it comes to a poll. And if it doesn't really work out like that, everybody kind of throws their hands up and says, wait, wait, what's going on? How is life better for Donald Trump and the Republicans today? I mean, they do have the majority in the Senate, or a majority in the Senate, which they had prior. So does gaining more in the Senate outweigh losing the House? Well, it depends on how you want to look at it. The president, as opposed to saying, look, we lost the House, is going to focus on the fact that, look, we won the Senate. And the reason we lost the House is because these people who were running for the House uh, for for representative positions didn't embrace me. They didn't want me there with them. They didn't talk the way that I talked. They were more focused on kind of state and smaller level issues. And that is the reason that they didn't win. And he's going to chalk that up as a win to him because in his eyes and the president's way of thinking, the people that didn't run on his platform, you know, deserve to lose. And that's why, you know, he'll call that a win because it was somebody else that won that really wasn't in his ideologies anyway. So this is a big deal for the president. He calls it a win. So if it is a referendum on his presidency, uh, I guess it depends on who you ask then. Absolutely. I mean, Republicans, again, they'll say, look, we made these big gains, you know, in governor races. We made these big gains in the Senate. This goes to show that there are a significant number of people out there that really enjoy the way that the president is operating the country. Flip side, Democrats are going to say, wait a minute, look at how many gains we just made. We just flipped off a whole bunch of different uh, Republican seats that were in the House. This goes to show that there is, you know, an issue with the way that the president is leading things. And we're going to keep an eye on it. So everyone's happy. (laughs) <laughs> it would appear that way. Who's, well, cry- I mean- Who's crying here? Well, I mean, the, the people that are crying are the people that really wanted to kind of make a bigger impression. You know, there would have been, it, you know, Democrats will sit there and say there was a couple of opportunities that were missed for us to be able to pick up a Senate seat here or to pick up a couple of House seats here or to pick up a governorship race here. There are going to be some wounds that need to be licked. But again, that's what happens after every election. You look and see what went wrong and you try to build on that to make sure it doesn't happen again. So does this put some reins on the president? I mean, now they're t- talking about uh, looking for tax receipts and such. So where does this leave his job moving forward. I mean, he has to answer to more now. Absolutely. I mean, this is going to be a difficult time for the White House to be able to get any kind of legislation moving forward. You know, think about it. The president wanted to get another, you know, upwards of 10 percent tax cut passed down to the people across the United States. The House is going to make that incredibly difficult, especially with somebody like Maxine Waters, who's likely going to be in charge of the Finance Committee on the House level. It's going to be tough for the president to move any of this legislation forward unless there are anything in there that he can kind of offer the Democrats to say, look, you do this for me. I'll do it for you. It's going to be difficult for the president to get anything else that he had campaigned on back in 2016 moving forward through to 2020 so is he a lame duck president now it's it's very possible that you may want to call him that. I mean, there's still a couple of things that need to be left uh, to be done through the end of this term before January kicks in. So he may have a couple of more victories here and there. And if we end up with, you know, another vacancy on the Supreme Court or if there's some more uh, judicial appointments that need to be put towards the lower level and circuit courts in the United States, he'll classify that as a big win because he still has Senate support to be able to pass through all the judges. Will we see his tax returns? Well, I mean, he has already said that they can try to put a subpoena towards me and, you know, we'll see how badly I can fight it. I don't know uh, what kind of powers the president has to to ignore a subpoena except for, you know, uh, asserting executive privilege once he's sitting in front of a committee. So that's what he's going to try to fight. Democrats, sure, that might be one of the first things they go after, but they also have big fish to fry in investigating some of the cabinet secretaries that are sitting uh, close to the president. There are a number of people that uh, that Washington or that Democrats would like to see investigated as well. So this does spread beyond the president to the people who surround him as well. What about the Mueller investigation? Where does it leave that? 
Well, I mean, this is a situation right now that's still, you know, kind of up in the air. And Robert Mueller was quiet in the weeks leading up to the election so as not to influence anything. It's likely that uh, within the next couple of weeks, we could potentially hear uh, from inside the investigation as to whether it's wrapping, whether or not there are more people that he intends to sit down and talk to. We're still waiting to see whether or not the president is going to sit down with Robert Mueller. Uh, the thing to, to keep in mind here is that the president has already said he wants to make changes inside the Justice Department if he does go ahead and decide to fire uh, the attorney general. General, or if Jeff Sessions steps down, uh, that does leave the, the Mueller investigation vulnerable. Uh, but, you know, that also then gives the Democrats some fuel to say, well, look, if you're going to let this investigation kind of burn up, we're going to open up new investigations that potentially could rehash some of the stuff that he was looking at. So the president has to tread carefully on this. So your thoughts on what the second half of this will be like compared to the first? Will it be calmer? Will it be more divisiveness and controversy? I think you're going to see the president uh, use his platform to uh, rally his base around uh, the Democrats and, and, and potentially use that obstruction word on a much more frequent basis. Because remember, he called the, the, the Republic, uh, the Democrats rather obstructionists over the last two years, despite the fact that the GOP was in full control. Now, if the, the Democrats start to block legislation or block the president from being able to carry out things that he wants to do outside of an executive order, he's going to use this as kind of a boogeyman to say, well, look, here are the problems right now that are in Washington. Here is what the Democrats aren't letting us do right now. And you'll see that kind of uh, 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 anger towards towards the House lifted and it'll kind of carry him through towards the presidential election. Uh, despite having a, a great economy and record low employment in that country, uh, we hear lots about the caravan. Will that still be a priority uh, now that the midterm is over or does that help construct the wall? Well, I mean, interestingly enough, just a couple of minutes before we came on, the president was holding his news conference, and one of the things that he started talking about was the great economy and the money that are flowing back into people's wallets and, and all the jobs that people have across the United States. These are the things that he didn't speak about in the days leading up to the election, despite the fact that he had people around him saying, look, you need to talk about the economy. You need to not be talking about immigration. I think that immigration thing, like most experts are saying, was simply a ploy and a plot to try and get people out to the polls. He'll go back to mentioning the economy as soon as the next job numbers come out that'll be his big push to say look the economy's chugging along it's because of me it's because of nobody else and watch what i can do with it in the future i guess we have no way of knowing this but do you think the caravan helped him or hurt him in his the way he addressed it I think it depends on what you break down and parcel it down to, you know, vote yeah. by vote and district by district, because, you know, there were people up towards the Canadian border who thought that the migrant caravan was a big deal to them. But then when you look down towards Texas, Beto O'Rourke carried all of the districts that were along the U.S., uh, the Mexico-Texas border there. So, you know, it, it depended on how who bizarre the is that? Targeted. How bizarre is that when you think about it? The, well, people, yeah, the people in Upper New York State are more concerned than the people in Texas. Well, that's because the people who are in Texas are, you know, they see that it's actually yeah. not on their doorstep. They, it's not like, you know, you know, when you're 15 states away and the president tells you that they're knocking on the door and you don't have a way to actually see that. Yeah, good point. Uh, fascinating times. I'm sure it will continue. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News based out of Washington. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on what Reggie's talking about. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The new economic minister for Ontario says that scrapping the Ontario College of Trades is good for business. To talk more about all of this, Eric Denowden is with us, president of Hidden Homes, and is on the line with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, no problem. You're welcome. So tell us uh, what the, the problem was and what the issue was in regard to trades in the Ontario College of Trades and, and how developers had to do business. 
Well, the trades uh, in Ontario were, were overly regulated, uh, the, I guess the worst regulated in, in Canada, and where the ratios were sometimes as high as three to one. In other words, three licensed journey people uh, would need to train one apprentice. And when you're in smaller projects like single-family residential construction, uh, that ratio was, was unacceptable. And uh, so the one-to-one ratio that's being proposed is something that we've, as Ontario home builders, have, have uh, strived to achieve for, for over 10 years uh, to update our apprenticeship program. The issue we have is the aging demographic. We've got, uh, in the next 10 years, 85,000 people in the trades in our industry, in the residential construction industry, planning to retire of, or of their, their, of that age bracket. And along with the growth of our great province, uh, you know, with immigration and everything, we continue to grow. We need more and more housing, so we need more and more tradespeople to do that. And with limiting the number of people that we can get through the system was stymieing our ability to hire more young and up-and-coming people to get into the trades. How did we get here? Why the need for this? Why the need? Uh, every other province in Ontario uh, has, has, or every other province in Canada has better ratios than Ontario. We were falling far behind, so it's about time that we caught up uh, to the other provinces to uh, have a ratio of one uh, licensed journey person to teach the next generation is, that want to come up uh, into the trades. Um, and why it took so long, I don't know. As as a industry, as the Ontario Home Builders Association, we worked with different associations and with government and with the Ontario College of Trades to try to get that ratio into the you know the 21st century and say, hey, a one-to-one ratios are, are adequate and needed. We're in desperate need to have more and more of our next generation people coming into the trades and to be certified and licensed. So to clarify this, you would have, you needed to employ three trades people in order to train one. That in some of the trades, that is the, was the ratio, yes. Uh, why the need for three? Well, that's the good question. That's what uh, we struggled with for the last 10 years as we tried to renegotiate these, these ratios uh, with, with the parties that be, and including the Ontario College of Trades when it was formed not that many years ago. So who is against this? How do the unions feel about this? I mean, you're going to have to ask them. I'm not sure. Uh, sometimes through this beautiful province, there's, there's a different attitude in larger city centres where there's larger projects going on. I come from Belleville, Ontario, where you know the projects are much smaller. Uh, it's virtually impossible to have three licensed, let's say, electricians on the site uh, to, to have one apprentice learning. Um, because our jobs are much smaller. We don't, we don't have dozens of any one particular trade on our sites. You know, we're happy that a lot of our operators are, I'm, I'm going to call them mom-and-pop operations, are fairly small. Uh, so if they, nowadays, with the new uh, legislation, if we have two electricians, we can have two of the next generation being taught uh, by those two electricians. So it's, we're looking forward to it because we, in our own company, we have uh, some some. Younger people recently coming out of the high school level and are working for us and have asked to become licensed carpenters, but we are not able until now to to sign them all up at once. So we have to do one at a time. And so we're looking forward, and my some of my staff is looking forward to uh, starting now to register and become apprentices. Wouldn't this hold the industry back by having these conditions in place? 
I mean, it, it seems, you know, and, and obviously you're not speaking for the other side, nor should you, uh, but this seems to be like a, a union issue in the sense that we want three guys on there that you're paying full wage if you're going to put someone in there that's an apprentice. Uh, that being said, you're, at the end of the day, you're stopping more people from becoming the trade that you're looking for. That's correct, and that's the issue that we felt was the, the really big problem. We know we need more people in the trades. We know our province is growing and all these people need housing. We know by the aging demographic that many of our skilled tradespeople over the next 10 years will retire. And so there's, a, there's quite a large opening for licensed, registered, skilled trades in the, in the not-too-distant future. And presently, um, it, just take anybody to try to get an electrician or plumber to their house to do some service calls, and they're virtually impossible to obtain. So what does this, you're obviously a builder, so what does this mean for you? Well, for me directly, we, uh, as I alluded to, we do have uh, some, some young people, I'm going to call them in their 20s, that have recently come out of high school or maybe a college level or so, that are, want to become certified licensed carpenters. And they have to wait, because we've got many of them, until the, the certain number are out of school. In other words, we've got one in school right now, and he's takes about four and a half to five years to get your uh, certification. And once he's through the system, then we can get the next one started. But we have several licensed carpenters, so now we can team them up as a one-to-one ratio. So now I can have up to it. I'm a, I'm a small company, but I can have now three apprentices going at one time rather than just one. So it's really going to help the, the young people that I have employed get their credentials, get their certification much quicker. Does this mean that as a builder or a contractor, you would hire less licensed electricians or pick the trade because of this? Absolutely not. No, we, I mean, we don't hire that many to start with. So we do have licensed plumbers, electricians, carpenters on the job sites. Uh, I wouldn't say we would hire uh, less certified ones. We can't get them. So we've got to get them. Uh, trained. We've got to get this next generation trained and certified and licensed, and then they'll be on our job site, and they in turn then can, can train the next generation. So, no, I don't see that we'd hire less licensed electricians. We, we can't get enough electricians and plumbers and framers right now. So what does this mean for those people working for you that are looking for this? What does this mean for the young apprentice? Well, they can they can get certified that much quicker. So they've uh, you know they can they can start now. They can they can do their uh, on the job site get their job on the job site experience. They can then enroll in the in the uh, academic portion in a local community college to get their uh, their their in class training done and uh, become certified that much quicker. This will drastically change your business, will it not? I mean, when you think it's like three to one, now it's one to one. That's right. It's going to be very noticeable. And like I said, there's a shortage of trades in our industry, the residential construction industry. That's what I'm speaking for. And to open up the floodgates to get people uh, qualified to do these jobs is critical for the well-being uh, long-term and short-term and long-term well-being of this, of this province and, and the residential industry. And you'll it, pretty much. It's, it's funny that yeah, we we've got this pent up demand for for these workers, and yet we're stymieing, limiting the potential educational growth of these people, and it made no sense to us. And that's why we'd lobbied for ten years as an industry through the province of Ontario to get these ratios to a much more palatable, usable number of one to one. Once this, say, a year later, starts making its way through the system, how will we see a difference? What will change here? 
I think in the it, it takes more than a year or two. It'll take several years, but I think the long term gain is that in in the future, when you want to renovate your house or get a bathroom redone or or put a little addition on, you can actually find somebody to hire. Uh, try that right now, and it's it, in most locals, it's very difficult to get somebody into your your house to do a small renovation or addition or something like that uh, because there's just not enough workers to go around. Does this in they're any... good-paying jobs, by the way. You know, they're good-paying jobs. And, and the apprenticeship program, they don't come out of school four or five years later with a, a student loan. They are yeah. actually getting paid on the job while they're learning. It's, it's just win-win for everybody, these apprenticeship programs. Does this in any way reduce the pay of electricians or any trade? Does this reduce their value? Absolutely not. I mean, law of supply and demand does kick in if our economy tanked and, and there was no new houses being built. Yeah. We may have too many, but the foreseeable future, as I allude to, with the aging demographic of the existing trades, we know that's about 85,000 in the next 10 years, with the continued immigration and a lot of them coming to Ontario, there's more uh, residential accommodations needed for everybody. It's it's a growth industry. Uh, so we don't see uh, rates going down in any way, shape, or form. At least I've never seen it happen in the 35 years I've been building houses. So... Uh, no, we don't see that. We we see that 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 we definitely have to get more uh, people into it because there's lots of openings presently and lots of openings in the future. So has the has the response been largely positive? Is there anyone upset about this? From from anybody I work with uh, within the residential construction industry at a provincial level, uh, locally, uh, my trades, my plumbers, my electricians, we're we're all very upbeat and and really pleased with the way this government has said. Let's let's move forward. Let's educate the people that we've got job openings for. Uh, let's get them certified. Let's get them qualified. So in the future, when you have to retain somebody for some services, they are certified. They are licensed. So I think it's win-win-win for everybody. I don't know who would be opposed to it and under what thought process they would opposed to this. As you said, this is going to take a while for trades these tradespeople to get work their way through the system. That being said, as a contractor, as a as the, as someone who builds homes, you will see this uh, result almost immediately just in the people you can bring on board, no? That's correct. So, to be honest, I I've, I've got some students that that are working for me, but I cannot sign them up as of today or yesterday. I cannot sign them up under the apprenticeship program because I already have a few. This will give these young people the opportunity to get registered now, begin their schooling, and start accumulating their hours to become uh, certified in the course of four to five years. All right, Eric Den Outen has been with us, president of Hilden Homes. A new economic minister for Ontario says that scrapping the Ontario College of Trades is good for business. Eric agrees. Thanks for the time, Eric. Much appreciated. Enjoy your afternoon. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. So uh, what were your thoughts on what all went down last night? In terms of the U.S.? Yeah, um, let's start with that. Yeah, I guess that's sure. a loaded question. So I should have clarified myself there. Uh, who won? Because it seems everyone's happy. Well, uh, let's put it this way. Uh, because it was a split in, in the two houses, or a split in Congress, which means that the Democrats took the House of Representatives back from the Republicans by a very small margin, it's going to end up being roughly about 5 or 10. And the Republicans pushed up their lead, or pull, pulled it up a fair bit, uh, in the Senate by about to roughly about three or four senators in total. Uh, both sides can easily claim victory. 
even though obviously the Republicans are in a more difficult scenario, because at one point they controlled both the houses, the judiciary, and uh, most or a good chunk of the majority of the uh, gubernatorial races and governors in the country. But in the end, the Republicans can sort of look at this as a semi-victory in the sense that the blue wave that some people were talking about, that the Democrats were going to come crashing through and win both houses and take power and basically hamstring Donald Trump and impeach him, etc., etc., none of that ever happened. And as I've told you on your show, and I said it on others, and others said the same thing too, the blue wave was not real. Um, let, was, let me interrupt you there, because the last guest we just had on said uh, that it didn't happen because of ge- ge- geographics and the electoral system and the way everything's, you know, figures out. Um, yeah, in part. That, in part, that's true. Yeah. But it, it also didn't happen because it's not realistic. That's not how the country was broken down. Mm. For example, a lot of people were looking at the, uh, the Georgia gubernatorial race and basically looking at someone like Stacey Abrams, who was tapped by Oprah Winfrey to be become the, ne- you know, the next governor there, and everyone was saying, well, this, you know, this is the, the coming that everyone is looking for. This is going to be the big change. Scott, Georgia has been in the Republican camp since 1984. That goes back to Ronald Reagan. There is no history whatsoever mm. of the Democrats holding a position of that importance in 30-plus years. And, quite frankly, aside from the fact that, yes, Ms. Abrams was probably one of the best candidates they had put up in a while, she is so liberal and so out of touch with the way most Georgians think about day-to-day life in U.S. politics, it wasn't even logical. But this is, again, not surprising, because if you look at Missouri, for example, which had put in Claire McCaskill, which was really sort of out of keeping with the way that that particular state looks at politics and economics, and some people were saying that, well, you know, because of her role with uh, Judge Kavanaugh, that would actually protect herself because she had, you know, defended, you know, the Democratic way, she had opposed Mr. Kavanaugh, defended the rights of women, yeah, well, she lost, and she lost badly. People were just sort of hoping, I think, Scott, in the end, that everything was going to change, and they basically felt that the anger and animosity towards Donald Trump would also translate to anger and animosity against the Republicans. But what we found out last night, and midterms are not necessarily the best way to sort of gauge the political temperature, so to speak, of the American public, or any public for that nature, um, it just showed that people were frustrated enough to break things apart in the Congress, but to not necessarily give the Republicans a a good tongue lashing or, or spanking, if you will, because they are basically content with the fact that there are good things happening with the U.S. economy. The Republican Party thus far, although imperfect, seems to be on the right side of history on certain things. Ergo, people are only frustrated up to a point. So what your other guest has said is absolutely not wrong. Geography, the Electoral College, gerrymandering, various other things did not favor a blue wave, but a blue wave was not realistic. It was just an imaginary thing that the political left came up with. They were happy to have it. They thought that this was going to be the way of the future. It was going to convince a lot of Americans so to they go were, with them. It they, didn't happen. They were convinced that there were enough people hating Donald Trump that that's, that yep. was it. That would get them in. And obviously, yep. they've got a lot more work to do. What about the second half of this presidency? How will it be different from the first? How does this change things? Well, that's a good question. And basically, the way I look at it, there are two different strategies that could potentially happen. One, which I'll say right up front is the less likely of the two, is that Donald Trump could act like a bridge builder. 
He realizes that obviously some of his major legislation, some of the controversial pieces too, like say the wall with Mexico is probably done with, uh, the health care debate is probably going to be shelved for another couple of years. There's definitely not going to be another major tax cut, not with the way the, you know, the democratically controlled House of Representatives looks right now. Um, I think he realizes that some of those things are just not going to happen, so he's, need to, he's going to need to give in a little bit to ensure some of his agenda and some of his things go through. Like, for example, you know, the, I think, close to $500 billion in infrastructure spending that the Democrats are really pushing hard for. Probably Donald Trump will go along with it, and I think that there are some liberals, or liberal Democrats, if you like, who believe that because Trump really isn't a conservative or Republican at heart and has been in the past linked with the Democratic Party and some liberal positions and causes, maybe he'll give in to it because by nature Donald Trump just sort of blows with the wind. He doesn't specifically have a plan in mind. So that's one possibility. The more likely scenario is that Donald Trump is going to slug it out with the Democrats for the next two years. And they're just going to fight and tussle. A lot of things won't get done. There'll be enormous amounts of gridlock. There won't be any bipartisan legislation. And then Trump, during his re-election campaign, in lieu of the 2020 presidential election, will point fingers at the Democrats and say, see, this is what I warned you about. It's the Democrats who are holding up the progress that we saw the first two years of my presidency, and the last two years they're doing nothing. Is this really the America you want? And that could actually work very well for him in a re-election campaign, and it also helps the Republicans, too. Will we see, uh, so we won't necessarily see less rhetoric or a kinder, gentler Trump? No, I mean, we're already seeing it today, and I don't know if you've covered it already or not, but if you looked at his presser, her press conference, and the battle he had with uh, CNN host uh, Jim, uh, sorry, CNN reporter, I shouldn't say that, Jim Acosta, and, and look, there's no love loss between Acosta and Trump, we know that, but this was by far the worst these two have ever acted in public. You know, Trump really sort of baiting him along, and Acosta baiting the president as well, to the point where Trump basically said, you know, take away the microphone, he's had enough. He refused to hand it to the, the, the person who was helping out, I assume it was an intern or someone, and wouldn't give the microphone to the, to the, to the girl who was handling it. Yeah. It was so preposterous. <laughs> and really, if Jim Acosta is supposed to be a professional an unbiased reporter, well, that would shock me because he certainly didn't act that way. So yes, Donald Trump doesn't help anything at all whatsoever by attacking and fighting the media on a regular basis. I agree that it gets to be very tiresome and it doesn't do anything to improve public discourse. But when you have a reporter for a network that, yes, has dropped a lot in terms of popularity and viewership in recent years, and yes, is not as respected as it once was, when you have them sort of bantering away and fighting, the reporter is just as much at fault as the president is. But that's going to be probably the tone and tenor for American politics for the next two years, too. I, I mean, if, if you believe what you see, from the least from this one little instance. You know, I love CNN, but, uh, you know, it, it, when you... Why, same thing with the presidential election. It's like, my goodness, the Canadian networks are doing a better job of being more equal on this than what CNN is. I mean, they're just, you know, they're just hanging on to every last, well, maybe the Dems can pick this up. Well, maybe the Dems, it's like, my goodness. Uh, It seems that, you know, uh, Canadian networks are declaring winners faster than they are. No, it's true. Look, I can't watch CNN much anymore. And it has nothing to do with Trump. I had 
stopped really watching it several years ago. It was during the Obama presidency, I just found it became almost the point of being intolerable, the way it was being done with things. And I'm not suggesting that Fox News, which, yes, I do watch, is perfect, not by any means. In fact, I don't think there is a TV network in the United States that would be regarded as quote-unquote perfect or near-perfect. But at the same time, and again, it's more due to ideological slant than anything else, I can at least deal with the stuff on Fox News much easier than CNN. But to be perfectly frank with you, if I want to get a left-leaning perspective on news, and I read a lot and I do watch a lot and listen to a lot, I will go elsewhere. I will actually go to MSNBC, which I can't stand either, because I at least find it a little bit more entertaining and not always just the same piecemeal argument over and over again. CNN has basically become 24-7 breaking news, but it's not breaking news. It's not interesting. It's not engaging. And with the exception of, say, a few people like John King, I just find they're parroting the same lines over and over again. It just doesn't become very interesting anymore. So where I used to watch CNN a lot, and I'm sure, like me, you grew up with it and enjoyed Mm -hmm. watching it, and I thought the concept that Ted Turner came up with back in the 80s was brilliant, it's a shell of its form itself. And so I can understand why a lot of Republicans have just tired of it, not just because Donald Trump says so, because they're just sick of it. Uh, Let's talk about Tony Clement, Conservative MP Tony Clement stepped back from his shadow cabinet after it was revealed he sent sexually explicit video images and video of himself to someone who turned out to be an extortionist. I I think when I heard this, and and yeah, it's, you know, what do you say about this? Um, But I think it's important too that we don't lump this story, in it, and we still don't know lots about it, but no. we're careful not to lump this story in with others that have stepped down because of alleged misconduct in regard to an assault of some sort or, mm-hmm. or anything like that. This, from what I understand, is a scenario where he engaged in this behavior, which, you know, a, a married man, kids, all of that stuff, yep. uh, and, and, and engaged in this relationship with this person, and then they have tried to extort money out of him, and mm-hmm. he has come forward because of that. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, that's what I know of, too. No, it's a case of bad behavior more than anything else, and I'm not defending it. I've known Tony Clement for the better part of 20 years, and look, he's a loyal conservative. He's a loyal foot soldier. This is a man who has been a minister both provincially and federally and has run for the leadership of both the Ontario PCs and the federal conservatives, and not as a joke candidate, as a real serious candidate. Tony Clement has been around a long time. He was a young Tory to begin with. And he has worked hard to get to the position he is in. The problem is that it doesn't matter whether you know him, whether you respect him, whether you like him, what he did was incredibly foolish and incredibly stupid. It really was. And yes, his press release last night acknowledged that. I'm not disputing that. But it's just hard to believe that a man who has been in public life and in public service for more than half his life would actually do something like this in this day and age where there is no way in God's green earth you won't get caught for doing it. It's impossible. And look, it it makes it worse, obviously, that he was married and that it was an extortion attempt. Those are awful things. Mm. But even if he were a single politician doing it, and we know that obviously people have been sort of caught in this web before, and politicians have recently sent out these stupid sexually graphic uh, photos, you know, from Anthony Weiner on, and look what's happened to them because of it. You would just think that Tony Clement, who understands politics and sort of knows it inside and out, 
would think twice before doing something like this. And obviously you're right. There's a lot to this story that we don't know, and we can't necessarily compare it to, say, a Harvey Weinstein or a Bill Cosby or something like that, or even a Gian Gomeshi, if you want to use a Canadian example. I don't think we can, no. No, but it's but unfortunately, for a person who wants to be a part of public life yeah. and in politics, he or she has to know better and has to refrain from things like this, no matter what their private thoughts or demons entail. And for this reason, he is basically, I think anyway, come to a point where, yes, he hasn't been thrown out of the party. He still remains a Tory MP, although he gave up all of his various parliamentary duties and his shadow critic role. But at the same time, if he is unable to really regain control of his life and fix his right now terribly shattered image in a matter of months, we're not talking years, but months, he is in big trouble and his political career, well, I don't wish it upon him because he is a nice guy. I hope it's not over. It could be, especially when you consider the writing that he's in and the way people look at things, especially during the era of the Me Too movement, this was just a bad move by a person who should have known a hell of a lot better. Absolutely agree with this, but how will the public view this? Because as per se, it doesn't seem to be an abuse of power no. or an assault in any way, just incredibly poor judgment. Yeah. Will the, no, we... pub- will the public give him a pass on that? Well, you're absolutely right. It is poor judgment, absolutely. Um, The question is, you know, it's interesting. I've been asked this, and I guess the only thing I would say is that we don't know enough about the after-effects of the Me Too movement, because it's still fairly fresh in our world, and especially in North America, to sort of see how people who do get past it or recover from it are able to sort of rebuild their image. I mean, obviously, you can use the example in Canada of Steve Pakin, but Steve Pakin was you know, was accused of doing something that he never did. And it was disgusting and disgraceful what Sarah Thompson did to him. And fortunately, you know, TVO, his employer, stuck with him, did a proper investigation, found him innocent, and the matter is resolved. But that's a case where, in the case of Pakin, who I've known for many years and is a friend, he said right off the bat, I did not do this. The difference here is that Tony Clement, right off the bat, said, yes, I did do this, and I'm ashamed of it, and I'm disgusted, and I have to deal with my family, I wish privacy, etc. So, yeah, it's not the same thing as sexual harassment. He certainly didn't beat women or do anything of that sort. And, of course, being caught in an extortion plan was certainly not part of his way of thinking, and I'm sure he never sensed that anything like this would happen. But at the same time, even if it's more minor, shall we say, than other issues, you still can't excuse this bad behavior. So it's really a question of whether people are willing to forgive and forget. Some people may be willing to forgive. I just don't know how many people will forget about it, and that's the big problem. So how, what, does the, what does the public expect leaders to do in issues like this? I mean, we've seen it with the, although they're different scenarios, as I pointed out. We've, we mm-hmm. saw this earlier this week with the Ontario PC party. Yes. Um, wh- how, does the, how do Ontarians process, or, or Canadians process Canadians. this? Do they, as long as the leader has done something and the person steps down, mm-hmm. is that good enough? Well, Andrew Scheer has obviously said that, you know, that what he did, what Tony Clement did was completely wrong, but he will remain a Tory MP and part of the party caucus. That's his decision to make. Um, I think most people would look at this issue as saying as a first step, that's probably acceptable because 
um, Clement admitted his culpability right off the bat and said, you know, I, it, this is completely my fault. I was foolish. I, you know, I'm to blame for this. And look at the, you know, look at the mess I put myself in, so to speak. I think that probably allowed Shear and his, and his senior advisors to say, well, you know, this is not something we necessarily want to have in the news cycle for a few days. But as long as he has stepped down from all of his duties and he is willing to go into some sort of therapy or at least speak with his family, do something with his family to try and repair this damage or mitigate it somehow, we have to sort of stand by him and stand with him. Had there been anything else involved, in other words, if there had been let's say, physical abuse or emotional abuse, mm-hmm. there is no way on earth that any political leader, Andrew Scheer or otherwise, would have ever stood behind someone like that, and they would have tossed that person out of the caucus immediately and forever. I think here, even though people will say that maybe Andrew Scheer didn't handle this as sternly or as toughly as he could have, I think he at least sort of went part of the road down acknowledged how bad it was or that it was bad behavior, but is willing to give Mr. Clement a chance in the interim to try to fix his life, to improve the damage that he's caused to himself, and see if maybe there is a way that he can continue to play a role, either as a shadow critic or otherwise, in the party. So I think most people regard this as a fair thing and the right first step, but if Mr. Clement does not improve things or is unable to repair his image, then Mr. Scheer may be forced, like other leaders probably would in the same scenario, to do something else in the next step. But again, that remains to be seen. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thank you so much. Have a great day. You too, Scott. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.